for our first reading in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. (coughs) You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second reading is in Matthew 2. (coughs) After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him the gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country for another week. Thanks, Scotty. My name's Mark. Uh, Scott's in the room. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Ken has said, we're starting our Christmas series today. And I just want to get the sense every year when we come to Christmas that we really, um, we're treading on holy ground as we come and consider the incarnation the Son of God. And so why don't we pray and ask for God to give us kind of holy reverence for what we're going to think about today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these weeks in the lead up to Christmas when we can stop and look back at that manger in Bethlehem where we can consider your Son entering into the world in our flesh. Lord, we know as we come to this topic that there are limits to our understanding of just what was going on when he became man. So please help us today as we think about who you are, what that means for us at Christmas. Please give us as much understanding as we can bear. Help us to revere and fear and love you for what we see of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, Well, over the last week or so, there's been an interesting news story developing. I wonder if you've seen it. A mysterious monolith has appeared in the desert of Utah. 
was uh, first observed by some state biologists who were doing a helicopter survey of the area. They noticed this structure sticking out of the rock, and obviously in the middle of nowhere in Utah, this thing shouldn't be there. So they landed their helicopter and went down and investigated. And what they discovered was that this thing was about three metres tall, metal on all sides. It had been cut into the rock and was just standing there with no seeming explanation for kind of where it had come from and who was responsible for it. What a strange development. Well, in the subsequent days, more strange developments happened. Another one of these things appeared in Romania, on top of a hill in Romania. Uh, and then, as of a few days ago, another one on top of a hill somewhere in California. These things are multiplying, it seems like. The, the mystery thickens because nobody has claimed responsibility for this. A lot of people speculated, well, perhaps it's you know, a leftover prop from a movie that was being filmed out there. No movie studios claim responsibility. Perhaps an artist made it as some sort of you know, avant-garde art piece, trying to send a message somehow. Well, no artist has claimed responsibility. What else could it be? It was a real mystery. And as you can imagine, when, when there's something as peculiar as this, something that feels like it's straight out of an Aliens movie, uh, the internet went abuzz with speculation that perhaps this was an artifact that had been deposited there by a visitor from another world. Perhaps this is the first sign of extraterrestrial life, that aliens are reaching out to us and telling us something about themselves by placing this strange metal structure in, in our planet. It's a tantalising thought. I mean, it's obviously it's going to be debunked, don't you think? If, as these things have been toppled over and dismantled, you can see that quite clearly they're made of human construction. But what a thought. That I I if we had been visited by a being from another world, what would that mean for us? What would these beings want if they came to our world? What message would they be trying to send? What would they want us to know about themselves? And more to the point, what kind of beings would do this? Would they be good or evil, uh, wicked or benevolent, angry or peaceful? We would want to know, wouldn't we? If there was a visitor from another world, that would be the first question. Well, what is this thing like? What do they want? At the heart of Christmas is a similar mystery, not to trivialise uh, what we're thinking about at Christmas, but in a very real sense, at Christmas, we were visited by a being from another world. The mystery of Christmas is that God sent his son into the world to be born of a woman. And the Bible uses that word mystery to describe the Christmas story, the events around Christmas. It's not a mystery in terms of trying to solve and piece together the clues. It's a mystery in the sense of something that is hard to understand, hard to fully wrap your head around. It's something that's really sort of is almost beyond comprehension. I mean, how can this child in the manger be God's own son? How can the eternal God who has existed before all things take on human flesh? How can it be that in this child, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form? Uh, that's why we've called this series The Wondrous Mystery, uh, because we are going to be exploring this truth that forces us right up against the limits of our understanding as finite creatures. In, in this series, what we are going to be doing over these next four, uh, four services is thinking about this question, what is God like? What is this God like who visited us that first Christmas in Christ? What is he like? It's a big question, and there's a lot riding on that question. Uh, the Christian author A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. And he's right. It's crucial that we have a right understanding of this God who visited us. So in this series, what we're going to do each week is we are going to look at one character trait of God, the God who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. And we are going to try and get our heads around this aspect of of God's character, of his being. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Christmas story each week, kind of through that lens of a a particular character trait of God and, and try and sort of comprehend and appreciate what it means for it to be this God who visited us at Christmas. And as Ken has said, the first character trait that we're going to be thinking about this week is the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God, which might seem like a strange place to start. I'll grant you that. It's probably not the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the God of the Bible. It's not one of the the words that we would naturally first use to describe him. Uh, But actually, the Bible has a lot to say about God's jealousy. As we've seen, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, in those first words. Verse 5, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is hardly a fringe teaching of the Bible, just in case you were worrying about that. This is at the heart of who God is. This is what he wants his people to know about him right from the very beginning. He is a jealous God. But it is surprising that God would describe himself that way, isn't it? Because nobody would ever invent or imagine a God who is jealous. If you were creating a God to worship, just inventing one in your own mind, then you would naturally create a God who had the characteristics that you admire, right? Love, mercy, power, patience, kindness, those kind of character traits. But jealousy, well, we know that jealousy is an ugly thing for a person to possess, right? And so when we hear the word jealousy, of course, we think about selfishness and and, and suspicion and distrust. In our experience, I think, jealousy, more often than not, uh, involves uh, painful resentment or hostility towards other people because we perceive that they have some advantage over us. That's jealousy. Jealousy makes us think of those possessive and demanding and demeaning and overbearing people. And that is a repulsive character trait, rightly so, isn't it? And the Bible's full of examples of of that really horrible kind of jealousy. Uh, Take Joseph in the book of Genesis and his brothers. Uh, Joseph, who is the favorite son of their father, Jacob, who received that special coat, that blessing from his father. His brothers, what do they do? They're jealous of him, and so they plot to kill him. They throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. Jealousy is awful. How can it be that the God of the Bible, a God who is supposedly perfect, is jealous. What does that mean? Well, uh, it's important to understand that the the word that the Bible uses for jealousy, the kind of original meaning for it, means to become intensely red. Can you imagine somebody becoming intensely red? We often think of jealousy as the green-eyed monster, but truthfully, it's more about being a red-faced person. It's... uh, what that, that word kind of really me- is describing is the look on someone's face changing and giving, giving hateful emotions uh, that's kind of associated with zeal, with passion that somebody feels about something that's dear to them. That's the word jealousy. In fact, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word translated in the Bible, jealousy, is the same word that we translate sometimes as zeal. Uh, that's being jealous and being zealous 
are the same thing biblically. God is zealous in the sense that he's eager about protecting something that is extremely precious to him. And so the question then is, well, what is that thing that God is jealous for? That thing that is most precious to God. What is God jealous for, primarily? It's for his own glory, his own fame, his own honour. God desires above everything else that his name be loved and cherished and revered. That is what God is commanding his people there in Exodus chapter 20. They are to have no other gods before him. He is to be numero uno. Do not make an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters uh, below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is saying to his people, you are not ever to lift up or to exalt anyone or anything other than God. He is to be supreme. That's what God wants right off the bat, what he's zealous for more than anything else. And that, I honestly, that might make you feel a bit uncomfortable. It might make you squirm a little bit to think of God being primarily concerned for his own reputation and his own glory. But do understand that God is not shy about that. God doesn't hide that fact. He, no, he freely admits, actually, that everything he does all the time is for the sake of his own honour and glory. If you were paying attention uh, as we were kind of working through the book of Isaiah in term three, you would have seen numerous times where God admits freely that that is why he is doing these things. In Isaiah 43, uh, God says that the purpose he creates, why he creates people is for his own glory. Everyone he's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why does he create you? For his glory. Uh, in chapter 48, when he's speaking about his decision to withhold judgment uh, from his people, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Why does God withhold judgment for his glory? Why does God pour out judgment for his glory? Why does God act in salvation for his glory? For his glory is the end to all of the why questions we can ask about God. God, why have you done this for your glory? God, why will you not do this for your glory? Ultimately, that is why God does everything, for the fame of his name. Now, if I were to say that, or if you were to say that, that I'm only going to act for my own glory, the, the, the reason why I am motivated is for the glory of Mark Roberts, well, you would be right to call me an egomaniac at that point, wouldn't you? But it is perfectly justified in God's eyes, isn't it? Because there is no one like God. He is completely self-sufficient. He is the uncreated creator. He is limitless in power and knowledge and splendor. God deserves all glory and honor for who he is. And so do understand that that is why all throughout the Bible, God is so fiercely jealous for the love and devotion of his people, of you and I. Because you see, as people worship this God, as they adore him and serve him, it shows God to be supremely precious, to be supremely desirable. As people love and cherish 
and revere God, he is glorified. And so if people serve other gods or serve other things other than God, then God appears to be less worthy by comparison, less preferable than he should be. Does that make sense? And so it's not a trivial thing to break God's commandments. The Bible says that when we do that, when we serve other gods, we are committing spiritual adultery. All throughout the Bible, the, the relationship between God and his people is talked about in terms of marriage kind of covenant. And so when his people do not glorify him, do not serve and adore him, when they live for anything other than God alone, it's as if they are being unfaithful in their marriage to God. Ezekiel uh, chapter 16 is perhaps, I think, one of the most graphic chapters in all of the Bible. It's a, a prophecy of judgment against the people of Israel uh, because they had turned away and were serving other gods. And it describes in heartbreaking, stomach-turning detail Israel as a, a wife that God had loved and cherished and blessed but who had run off to be with other lovers. And I want to read you some of these verses because it's important that we, we understand just what is at stake here in this relationship with God. And this is the PG parts of Ezekiel chapter 16. The parent, you might be advised, you may want to use earmarks for your kids this time. Ezekiel 16 from verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. This is God speaking to his people. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, which declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself idols and engaged in prostitution with them. I am filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Lord, when you do all these things. And you took brazen prostitutes as well. It's a painful chapter to read because it takes you inside what God is feeling when people turn away from him when they worship and serve anything other than him. And the chapter shows us that God will not stand for that. He will not settle for second place in the human heart. Just as a husband will not tolerate infidelity in his wife, so also God will not tolerate our infidelity in our worship of other gods. God burns with jealousy for us. And so he is committed to putting a stop to our adultery. If he did anything less, then we would actually question his moral character. God must intervene in our adultery and one way or another put an end to our unfaithfulness, mustn't he? In the story of the Ten Commandments, in fact, right after Moses received the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai, he goes down the mountain and do you remember what he finds of the nation at the bottom of the mountain? He finds that they have taken their golden jewellery and melted it down and turned it into a golden calf, an idol to worship. And they are dancing and singing, these are our gods. 
They've done the very thing that God commanded them not to do. They've given glory to something other than God. And what does God do? He, he acts in swift judgment because he will not share his glory with another. Now, when, when God is revealed in the pages of Scripture as this kind of a jealous God who, who wants and who deserves that kind of exclusive treatment from his people, that would have been a very radical thing for an ancient Israelite to hear. Because in the ancient world, uh, most cultures actually had a whole group of gods that you served with your life. You gave a bit of time and energy and resources to making one god happy, and a bit of time and energy and resources making another god happy, and you had to try and keep all of these balls kind of spinning at the same time. Pagan religion, I think, is, is, is perhaps a way to think of it, is a bit like politics, that there are multiple stakeholders that you're trying to please constantly, and there are all these trade-offs between which God you're going to make happy today. And God comes along into that culture, and he says, no. He says, no, if you want to have a relationship with me, it's not like politics, it's like a marriage. God wants an exclusive commitment from his people. He wants to be at the center of their lives. No room for anyone else. And to point out the obvious, that's a problem for us, isn't it? As we, as we stop and consider what this God deserves, this holy, jealous God, what he, what he expects from us, that is a problem for us. It's a problem for all people because we are like Israel. We give glory to idols. We, we try and give glory to ourselves. We keep it for ourselves instead of God. Uh, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. He said that every one of us is, from our mother's womb, an expert at inventing idols. Now, we may not you know, make golden statues that we bow down to, but we do elevate good things in life, uh, such as a successful career or the love of a spouse or uh, material possessions or the respect of our peers. We elevate those things and we turn them into ultimate things. And what is going on is that our hearts are deifying these things, making them our gods, making them the center of our lives, because we think that those things can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment. And the Bible says that that act is spiritual adultery. And as we do that, we are robbing God of the glory that he deserves. And so God is red hot with jealousy the picture of God in the Old Testament as a jealous God. So my question for you is, what would you do if you were in God's shoes? If the people that you created, that you called to love you, that you gave every blessing and advantage to, if they took those blessings and advantages and they worshipped them instead of you, and you deserved the honour and they were giving it to someone else, what would you do in that situation? So many of the romantic movies that we, we love and that have become classics follow a very similar formula. I don't know if you've noticed this. So many of these romantic movies have these big kind of defining moments in their story when one character makes a grand romantic gesture to win the heart of the one that they love. And so just to give you a few examples, think of Mr. Darcy, rain-soaked Mr. Darcy, standing there proposing to Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice. What a gesture. Or think about in the notebook when Noah built Ali uh, her dream house with his own two hands. What a gesture. 
Or think about in, in love, actually, when the little boy Sam, he runs in the airport past all the security to say a goodbye to the girl he loves, Joanna. Or perhaps in Notting Hill, when Will rushes right at the end of the movie into the press conference to ask Anna if she will stay with him. What we see at Christmas is a grand romantic gesture unlike any other. It might not look like it at first glance, but this baby that is in this manger is the God who burns red hot with anger towards his rivals who have stolen his beloved child. And at Christmas, that God comes to us. Now, why would he come to us? This God who is rightfully angry for the fact that we have turned away from him because of our adultery. Why would he come to us? Well, it's because he's doing something unimaginable, something unthinkable. This God is pursuing us. He is come to win us back, to defeat the idols that we have given our hearts to. He comes to us at Christmas because he's coming for us. Just like, it's, it's the opposite of what we deserve, isn't it? Just like Israel on Mount Sinai, we deserve swift judgment for that act of unfaithfulness. But that's not what we get at Christmas. We get a grand gesture of God's love. Because there is no length that God would not go to to make us his own. He leaves the glories of heaven to enter into the world below. The God who is eternal is spirit enfleshes himself. He lays aside his glory and his power so that he can become a servant. Ultimately, he lays down his life in order to gather for himself an undeserving, wayward people. Just as the angel told Mary, before Jesus was born, that her child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This child is going to be the one who secures for God a people whose hearts are devoted to him. And so, friends, at Christmas time, the jealousy of God is good news for us. Because even though... We are like an adulterous spouse. God wants to forgive us and to have us back. And he sends his son to accomplish that exact task. Christmas is the jealous God declaring that he wants you and I back for good, to, to love and to treasure and to enjoy him and in doing so to bring him glory. But the jealousy of God is also a warning for us. It's a warning that God will not tolerate his glory being given to another and we see that begin to play out in the christmas story too in matthew chapter 2 that bob read for us the story of the magi and their visit to king herod uh, we read there that when the magi come and hear this news they that king herod is troubled by this news and why is he troubled well it's because he's jealous isn't it he's jealous that there's a new king on the scene a king that might threaten his position that might compromise the glory and the honour that is coming to him. And so he schemes a way to kind of find out where this new king has been born. He thinks he can trick the Magi, because ultimately we, might, we find out he wants to do away with this king. But you see, God is sovereignly at work in the Christmas story. He warns the Magi so that they don't go back to Herod, so that he protects his son, 
so that Herod's plan to steal God's glory is thwarted. And that ought to be a warning for us as well, that God will not let anything stand in the way of his glory. It is futile and it is foolish to put anything or anyone else on the throne of our lives because ultimately we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is jealous for the supremacy of his name in this world and in your heart. So friends, as we understand and apprehend just a little bit the jealousy of God, let me urge you to to come to your senses and to turn your heart back to God to receive the forgiveness and the unconditional love that he offers us in Christ that we do not deserve and to give him the glory that he does. The jealous God has visited us in love and in this week. Can we pray? Holy, righteous, powerful, majestic God, that we are people whose hearts have turned away from you. We have worshipped and served created things rather than you, our creator. We confess that we cannot either. We ask for your mercy. Lord, at Christmas, we thank you for sending your son in love. Thank you for pursuing us despite our spiritual adultery. Thank you for giving us what we do not deserve so that we can come into relationship with you, that we can love and serve and adore and enjoy you for eternity. I pray that you would help us to do so well. In Jesus' name.